Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Avi Havivi's weekly Sidur class. We've been talking about the history of Jewish theology, Jewish ideas about God, and we spent several months on biblical ideas about God, and then we took a turn last week and started talking about rabbinic ideas about God. Again, rabbinic means classic rabbinic period, sages of the Mishnah Talmud and uh, Midrash, the first few centuries of the Common Era, called in Hebrew Chazal, Chachamenu Zichonam Livracha. Okay, so all those things are synonymous when I say rabbinic. It's rabbinic, classical, Talmudic, Chazal. Um, and last week when we started, we spoke about the rabbinic idea of God, the compassionate one, compassionate in particular to those who are especially vulnerable, um, the widow, the orphan, and the gear. And we talked about how the rabbis didn't necessarily invent that idea about God. They pulled together, I don't want to say cherry pick, that's not exactly right, but they pulled together different strands from the Bible and composed them. And when they pulled together strands and put them together, then um, it has a way of emphasizing uh, an idea. Um, and we'll see some of that today also. And today we're going to talk about, I know Larry in particular is going to love this. Um, we're going to talk about the anthropomorphic God, the God who has a body and an appearance, but you can't necessarily see it. Only people, special people who have visions can see it. Um, but those special people who have visions can see God. Or some of these passages we'll read aren't about visions. They're about, let's say, depictions of God. Um, and we'll say, as we go along, we'll say, like, is this imagination? Did they really literally believe this? You know, I don't know. Now, uh, I'm going to put the Haftorah plethora guy on the spot. In the Bible, what are the two passages that are the passages par excellence in the prophets of people who had a vision of God? Well, Ezekiel's got to be one. Ezekiel is one. You want the exact? No, Ezekiel. That's it. We don't, we're not quizzing on chapter and verse. That's okay. Ezekiel, Yechezkel. And the other one? Ooh, it's a hint. It's coming up. This Shabbos, actually. Isaiah. Yeshayah, oh, yeah. Isaiah. Right. Good. So let us, um, let, let me, allow me to share the screen. Okay. Here we go. So, um, I just, you know, so, uh, our, the rabbinic tradition receives the idea that there were two visionaries or prophets who were able to have a vision of God. Both of them, um, not, well, I won't say anything in advance. So, you know, here is Yeshayahu's vision of God. It seems to be his inaugural vision. It's the vision when he is called to be a prophet. For some reason, it's in Isaiah chapter 6. You'd expect if it's his vision to call be called to be a prophet, it would be Isaiah chapter 1, but it's not. So there's different discussions about how come it's in chapter 6 if it's his first vision. And God is seated. I beheld my sovereign, which is a translation of Adonai, 
va'ereh et Adonai. I saw Adonai sitting on a high and lofty throne with the skirts of God's robe filling the hechal, translated as temple, but hechal maybe more means, I'm just going to say, big hall, H-A-L-L, or something like that. Because if we were really thinking temple, we'd expect a word like mikdash or mishkan, and that is not what the word is, right? So, So right there we'll say, God is depicted as what? What kind of humanoid form? Is God depicted like a school teacher? Is God depicted like a taxi driver? Is God depicted like a milkmaid? King. 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 God is a king. God is sitting on a throne and kings wear robes and presumably they wear like, I guess, bigger and fancier robes than you or I do. And God's robe is so massive that the hems of it, the folds, fills the entire Hechal, whatever that is, the hall, the room, the throne room, something like that. Um, and of course, kings don't hang out in their throne room alone. They have attendants, um, uh, courtiers, attendants, servants, whatever. And these are called here seraphim, um, wisely not translated in the English, seraphs. And the seraphim have each has six wings. Okay, so they are mythical beings. They're not beings like exist, right? So, so God is depicted as humanoid. These aren't exact. These are humanoid, but different wings. And what do they do? What do courtiers do? Regular human courtiers, they hang around. They say, the king is great. My majesty, you are great. All right. So this is what God's attendants do. And they say to each other, Kadosh, 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 Hashem Tzvaot, Melo Chol Haaretz Kevodo. Holy, 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 the God of hosts, whatever hosts means. We talked about that extensively in the past. God's armies, right? The whole world is full with God's presence or Kavod. So notice, by the way, what they say about God is um, represented in the image concretely as a perhaps as a metaphor god's skirts fill the whole hall god's kavod presence fills the whole universe okay and when they made this noise um or maybe it's god who's about to say something because god is going to talk and talk to yeshayahu when there's that sound or the noise it's extremely noisy and uh, the doorposts shake, and the house is filled with smoke. So hold on a moment, Terry. Okay. Now, what other possible human image that might be familiar to biblical people mm-hmm. could you imagine is being used here other than, or in addition to, the image of a king in the king's throne room? Where else was filled with smoke because of God's presence? Anyone know? The temple. Mishkan. The Mishkan, or really, strictly speaking, the Beit HaMikdash, right? Because this is biblical times, not desert times, right? Um, and because uh, one way of understanding the temple is that it's God's house. It's actually 
called that when Solomon builds the temple. It's called God's house. God is a king. God has a private throne room. What's God's private throne room in the temple? Michael is muttering it, but has to unmute. The Holy of, the Holy of, the Holy of Holies. But just as you can't go into God's throne room any old time you please and see God any old time you please, like Esther says to Mordecai, I can't just go see the king like the king hasn't called me. So same idea in the Beit HaMikdash. Only special people can go in. In fact, special people is only person, the high priest, and only once a year. And the high priest has to wear jingle jangles, right? Bells on the, on the hem of his tunic so that, um, so that there's a warning to God. It's like a knock on the door. Hey, I'm coming into your throne room. Okay. And who are God's attendants in the temple? They're not Srafim. They're called Livim. Say it again. Livim. No, uh, almost right. Those are oh. the people who serve there. But who are the mythical attendants of God oh. in God's throne room? Kohanim. Kohanim are the people who come and do the worship Mm-mm. and do the sacrifices. Who is hanging out with God in God's throne room? Who is his, you know, uh, uh, uh. angels? Yeah. What are those angels called? Malachim. Malachim. Excellent. Wrong. No. <laughs> what are they called? Come on. Those two beings that are in God's throne. Pruvim. Pruvim. Um, who are also imagined as mythical characters. They have wings. They look like a lion. Okay. Uh, actually, the Torah doesn't say what Kruvim look like. Now, um, you all said Malachim because rabbinic thought sort of homogenizes the Malachim. You know, there's Rafim and there are Kruvim and they're all just categories of, we'll all lump them under the category of angel. Right. I just want to point out in Isaiah, they're not called Malachim. And in the story of the mish- building of the Mishkan or the building of the temple, building of the Mishkan is in Exodus, Shemot. The building of the temple is in first book of Kings. Solomon builds the temple. In neither one of those are they called Malachim. Right. So in, in the temple and the Mishkan, they're called Kruvim. In Isaiah, they're called Seraphim. Um, there were there were groups of people in ancient times who actually were very fascinated by the categories of different kinds of angels. I don't think we're going to get into that. Um, but but sort of later rabbinic thought just lumps them all under as they're malachim. They're different types, but they're angels. And because you're post rabbinic, you and you're imbued with rabbinic thought, that's why you fell into the trap and you just said they're all malachim. Okay, but they're depicted differently. Okay, so God. In Yeshayahu. So Isaiah has a vision. Okay. And in this vision, Isaiah sees God. He doesn't say this was my imagination. He doesn't say this was a dream. He doesn't say this couldn't possibly be real. Right. He doesn't say it's a projection of what I think. He says, I had a vision and I saw God and God, parenthetically, looked like a big king sitting on a throne in a throne room and had attendants and there's smoke surrounding. By the way, I didn't finish with the smoke in the temple. Where does the smoke in the temple come from? The okay. sacrifices? Yeah, it's not really smoke. What makes the cloud in the temple so that people can't see God? Incense. Um, incense, right? 
So the Kohanim, the Kohen Gadol in particular, has does incense, which makes a big cloud, which prevents him from seeing what's in the Kodesh Kodeshim. The Kohen Gadol can only go in with incense so that he cannot see, as it says in Exodus, lest he see God and die. We'll see rabbinic texts, which are exactly the opposite of lest he see God and die, right? Isaiah does not seem concerned about lest you see God and die. So that's Isaiah. All right, quick look at um, Yechezkel, Ezekiel. He has his vision, Ezekiel chapter one, big wind, and he sees four creatures. He doesn't talk about Seraphim or Ophanim. He talks about Chayot, okay? And I think he also calls them Kruvim. And they all have four faces and they have four wings, not six wings. And above their head, so again, there are, let us call them mythological supernatural attendants, the types of beings that you or I would not see in the world in which we live, but they're depicted in a three-dimensional form that we could imagine. And on top of them, there's a platform, a rakia. And on top of the rakia, is uh, something like a chair made out of sapphire. Sorry. And on the chair is a, is an appearance that looks like a person. Okay. And the top half of the person gleams like this. And the bottom half of the person is like fire. And there's a penumbra about it. Fancy word like a glow, which is like the rainbow. Okay. And that is... Ezekiel calls it, here's my, my cursor, Mar'e Demut Kivod Hashem. He pulls his punch a little bit. The appearance of the likeness of the Kavod, the self or presence of God. And he falls on his face and then he has a vision. I'm not going to go into the vision, like, you know, chapter two and most of chapter three, but at the end of the vision, he's lifted up. <clears throat> because he'd fallen on his face, right? And a wind carries me away. And as the wind carries me away, I hear a loud noise. And the loud noise says, Baruch kevod Hashem mim komo. Blessed is God's kavod in its place or from its place. So obviously, right? Every, all of you daily daveners know these two visionary passages of God depicted on a throne, depicted on a king with attendants, and the attendants say certain things to praise God. These are, um, um, in, in immigrated. That's the wrong word. They're, they're brought into, um, our Sidur as we imitate the angels and saying, in saying these words in the Kedusha. Remember three Kedushas, seated Kedusha before the Shema where we say all of the array of heaven, they sit around and praise you. That's actually the longest Kedusha, okay, which really gives the whole description. Um, and then we have the uh, Kedusha, the Kedusha of the Amida, right, where we say a short version of that. Let us praise you down here the same way they praise you up there. We are imitating the supernatural beings who hang out with God and praise God. Kadosh, 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 Baruch, Kodosh, Kamo. And then, of course, the third Kedusha, Kedusha de Sidra in the, um, in the, um, Uvalitzion right before, uh, the, uh, Alenu. And we talked at, at great length about 
those three Kedushas. So there's visionary experience from the Bible, Isaiah and Ezekiel. That means certain people can see God. This is what God looks like. They don't say it was a dream. They don't say I imagined it. They say, this is what happened to me. This is what I saw. Okay. Um, and we're going to see how the rabbis pick up on some of these images of God has a humanoid appearance that can be seen by certain people and how they kind of, I'm going to say, amplify this in their midrashic stories. But first I will pause to hear from Terry, who's waving me down. From, um, if you go back up to the Isaiah quote, please. Yeah. Would you comment on Adonai Tzvaot? Okay. Um, so technically Adonai written out. Uh, do we actually, uh, right. Well, it's really here. Here it's written out. Aleph Dalid, as they say, as right. And from, we say the shame, Aleph Dalid Nun Yud, the name. God has many epithets or names. This is the name of Aleph Dalad Nun Yud. This is the name of Yud Hey and then Vav Hey. Sivaot are literally hosts, which does not mean I have people over to my house. It's the old fashioned English word of host, which means, um, army. It's, it's Hashem who is surrounded by or commands an army or an array and God's army or array are imagined to be who or what? What is God's army up there? It's not the Srafim. The Srafim are just the attendants. Stars, sun and moon. Stars. So the heavenly bodies are God's army. By the way, if you read carefully the Haftorah this past Shabbat, the poetic version of Shirat Tzvorah, it says when when uh, Deborah and Barak and the Israelites were fighting against Sisra and the Canaanites. The stars from their courses in the sky fought against Sisra. So it's an, an ancient mythological idea that the heavenly array are God's forces. And just like a, a commander can command their soldiers into battle, God can say, stars, go fight them. I don't exactly know how they imagined the stars fought them, but God could command the heavenly forces, just like a king commands an army. So that's what Tzavot means. So there are times, and and um, commentary always talks about how come sometimes God is called yud Hey and then vav Hey. sometimes, how come sometimes God is called Elohim, how come so- sometimes God is called Adonai, but it's spelled out Aleph Dalet Nun Yud, how come sometimes God is called Hashem Tzavot, so each one of these, um, the commentaries say like, why is this name pack picked? Why is that name picked in this? So we're not going to go into that in this instance too much, but I would assume it's because God is enthroned in heaven. So the epithet that's used for God here is God who commands the armies. Yes. And the armies are the divine beings and the divine beings are imagined in ancient mythical terms to be the array of heaven that we see. And those are the stars. And how do we know that they're like an army and God commands them? Because they move. Because if you watch the stars each night, they're not the same in May as they are in September. They're moving. So the ancient mind thought, well, why are they moving? Oh, because God commands them. 
Okay. Any other questions about this? I want to move out to, to sages and what they do with this because we're, we're running short on time and I have four or five passages. Okay. So, um, all right. So God has a body. God sits on a throne. And, and these are, I, I have pulled them from different sources, cherry picked. There's a whole book about this, by the way, by the scholar called David Stern. Um, you know how we talked last week when we said God is merciful, so you should be merciful. God closed the naked, so you should close the naked. And we said that that is the doctrine of imitatio dei in Latin, to imitate God. We're supposed to imitate God. David Stern has a book about how in rabbinic literature, um, God is depicted like humans, and his book is called Imitatio Hominis, in imitation of people, meaning God is depicted in rabbinic literature as an imitation of humans, the other way around from last week. Okay, so here's we have one passage, Rabbi Avin Bar Ada in Brachot 6a and b. Um, how do we know that God wears tefillin? Oh, he says, oh, God swears by his right hand and his other hand. His right hand is Torah, holds Torah. The left hand must mean tefillin. Mm-hmm. And then there's like a whole long explanation of why O's means tefillin, which I deleted that explanation, right? Um, and then, of course, because it's halachic, they say, well, if God wears tefillin, what does it say in God's tefillin? So in our tefillin, we have four passages, Okay. And your Tfilin Shal Rosh and Tfilin Shal Yah, there are four passages. There are four passages where in the Bible where it says, you should keep these words on your hand. Okay. So two of the passages are from the end of not last week's Parsha, but the Parsha before Parsha. Bo? Um, 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 Bo. Bo. Yeah, Bo. Thanks. Um, about the law of the firstborn. Keep the law of the firstborn when you get to the land because I spared all the firstborn when you were in Egypt, right? Keep this on your hand, which might be a metaphor originally for very close to you on your hand and on your heart, but it's taken literally to be like an amulet that you wear on your arm. So that's two of the passages. They're back to back about the Bechor. And then, of course, the first paragraph of the Shema and the second paragraph of the Shema, which we just said this morning, those are four passages in the Torah that say, keep these words, which are a commemoration, very close to you on your hand and on your heart. These are the four passages that are in our tefillin. We are commanded to keep them on our hand and our heart, which raises a very good question. Well, if God wears tefillin, surely it doesn't say that in God's tefillin, because that's a command to us to keep some commemoration of God close to us. God must have something different in God's tefillin. So they argue about it. Okay. And the verse is, Mi ke'amcha Yisrael goyechad ba'aretz. Rhetorical question from the book of Chronicles. Who is like your nation, O God, a unique nation in the world? So that's how God keeps us close to God by having that in God's tefillin. And then there's an, okay, well, that's one passage, but the Tefillin has four passages, right? The Tefillin Shel Rosh has four boxes in it, okay? What about the other three? And then they argue about it. Okay, Mi Goy Gadol, who is a great nation, Ashrecha Yisrael, happy are you, o Israel. Oh, did God do anything like this to any other nation, raising you above anyone else? So a whole bunch of passages. 
Actually, then there are, I think, six of them. And then they say, well, if those are the passages, what's the problem with six of them? Halachically. Even? What, what is the problem with having six passages saying we are specially close to God? How many boxes does the chillin have? Or, or surely God would wear the same kind of chillin that we have, but have different passages. Okay. These two go in one box. These two go in another box. Uh, I, I can't remember. There's six or there's seven. Okay. Um, uh, and then just as in our chillin, they're divided into four different compartments. On Tfilin Shal Rosh, in Tfilin Shal Yad, they're all in one compartment. It's the same four passages, but one compartment. God has all of those. Again, I can't remember if it's six or seven. They're all written together in God's arm Tfilin. Now, we would read this, you know, our initial, because we are wow. post, because we are post Maimonidean, right? Like Yigdal. Ain lo demuta goof, no goof. God has no body or no appearance, of course, right? God is like H2O, tasteless, odorless, colorless, but also invisible and everywhere and in your heart, as we say to little children, okay? So God has no appearance, but that's because we're influenced by Maimonides, okay? So, but remember, Maimonides was like, you know, 600, 800 years after these passages. So throw that out. Yigdal hasn't been written yet. So it's fair to say, did they believe this? Did they, Chazal, the sages, did they know this was the play of their imagination? Did they believe this literally? I don't know. We read it, and with our post-Maimonidean sensibilities, we say, they couldn't possibly have meant this literally. Okay? But I just want us to entertain the possibility that maybe they are just amplifying the visions of Isaiah and Ezekiel, and saying, okay, well, God is sitting on a throne. God is not only a king, God is also a from Jew who studies Torah. There are other passages about, like, God, what does God do all day long? You know, one-third of the day he studies Torah, one-third of the day he makes matches, you know, one-third of the matches of, you know, people to get married, one-third of the day he he um gets prayers, right? Just like a king. What does the king all do all day long? The king has a schedule, okay? But I just want to raise the possibility. I don't know. Maybe they or some of the people actually believe this literally. If God has a humanoid figure and God is Jewy, surely God wears tefillin. Oh, that's interesting. Our tefillin has passages that say God wants us to keep God close to, to us. What would be in God's tefillin that makes us close to God, close metaphorically bound upon God's arm and Head. Go ahead, Michael. I'm kind of surprised that if the rabbis were going to choose passages, they wouldn't have chosen passages like uh, where God says he will never again flood the earth or where he will make us as numerous as the sand and, or the stars, okay. things like that. Okay. You, Michael would put different passages in God's mm-hmm. village. He would make a midrash mm-hmm. on the midrash. Good. Okay. I want to race on. I want to just cover a couple of things. I just want you to see these. Okay. What is, Right? How do you know that God davens? Well, is a passage which says, I will bring them to my holy mountain to, meaning to the temple in the future, to Beit Tefilati, the house of my prayer. Which, of course, you would say what Isaiah means by that is the house where prayer is directed to me. But the Midrash says, no, 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 no. 
doesn't say Beit Tfilatam, the house where they, Israel, is going to pray. The house of my prayer. I, God, have a prayer. That means, So what does God pray? Here's what God prays. Here's what Rob says. May it be my will. I, I, I get such a kick out of that. We always say, mm-hmm. God says, God's not praying to anyone else. May it be, all, all, we'll, we'll see in a moment, maybe about God turning to someone else for a prayer. May it be my will that my compassion will triumph over my anger so that I will be a compassionate God and not judge people according to the letter of the law. We'll talk in a few weeks about God's midat hadin and midat harachamim, God's aspect of um, mercy and aspect of judgment and how they're in tension with each other. Okay, so God has chillin, God prays. Here's a story. Rabbi Ishmael ben Elisha, who was a Kohen Gadol, said, uh, this is, uh, this is a continuation of the same passage. If you're playing this game at home, Brachot 7a. Once I went into the Kodesh Kodeshim with my incense and I saw, and here you say, is he pulling his punch here? Akatriel Ya Hashem Sifaot. Usually things that end in L are an angel, right? Michael, Gabriel, right? So this is some representation of God. But it's not called God. It's called some aspect of God, which is called Akatriel Ya Hashem Tzvaot. Don't ask me. I'm not an angelologist. Shehu Yoshev Al Kisei Ram Venisa. By the way, he uses, he doesn't say sitting on the Aron, on the Kaporet, which is what it would be called in the Mishkan. He actually uses the same phrase that Isaiah used. Sorry, I don't want to make you dizzy. Scrolling back to Isaiah. Va'er et Hashem Yoshev al Ram Venisa. I saw God sitting on a high and lofty throne. So Yishmael Ben Elisha says, Oh, by the way, you know, while we're talking about what God looks like, you know, one Yom Kippur, I went into the Kodesh Kodeshim with the incense, and I saw apparently this aspect of God sitting on the high and mighty throne. I caught a glimpse of him. And he said to me, Yishmael, my son, give me a blessing. What do the Kohanim do? They bless the people, right? God says to Yishmael, Yishmael, new Kohen Gadol, give me a blessing. Obviously, he wasn't going to say, to God. And he says, Yishmael, I want you to bless me, Mr. Kohen Gadol. I said to him, um, Yishmael ben Elisha, excellent. He recovered from what was no doubt his extreme shock at the moment, and he came up with something to say. I said, Same thing that God prays. May it be your will before you that your aspect of mercy will triumph over your anger, okay? And treat your children mercifully, okay? So in other words, the blessing I gave him was a version of what God's prayer is. Okay, God prays it for himself. Elisha ben... 
I was going to say Elisha ben Abuya. Sorry, Yishmael ben Elisha, the Kohen Gadol, gives a version of that to God as a blessing. Okay. Vinyalna li birosho. And God nodded God's head. That's what that means. God nodded God's head, which assume we assume means God liked the blessing, accept the blessing, accepted the blessing. Someone said something to you and you nodded your head. It would mean assent. You assent, A-S-S-E-N-T. Okay. I saw God sitting on the throne. And by the way, this doesn't mean that I could go and see God because he's the co again. This is, I want to take you back to Yeshayahu and Ezekiel. Only certain people maybe could do that. He's the Kohen Gadol. He only goes in on Yom Kippur. The, apparently the whole Kodesh HaKodeshim was not filled with smoke that he, so that he couldn't see anything. He actually caught a glimpse of God and God spoke to him and God said, I need a blessing. Doesn't say I need. I don't want to, I don't want to skew it. God said, give me a blessing. Mr. Kohen Gadol on Yom Kippur, right? Implied in that you're going to go out and you're going to bless the people, right? After you do your Yom Kippur service of incense and slaughtering and all that stuff we read about in the Avoda service in Musaf on Yom Kippur, give me a blessing. And he gives him a blessing that you should be compassionate. Okay. And God nodded. So again, fair to say, uh, we're not going to read the next passage. I'm just going to tell you what's in it. Fair to say, um, fair to ask the question, did they believe this? Do they know it's imaginary? Are they playing? I don't know the answer to that. I just want to hold out the possibility, the possibility that at least some people believe this literally. Because no one says, oh, sure, you imagined that, or it was a vision. The last passage, which we're not going to read, you can read it at home, from Brachot 59a in the Talmud, says, what are earthquakes? Earthquakes is when God is upset that we are in exile and two giant tears roll forth from God's cheeks and fall in the ocean. And that's what causes an earthquake. Technically, we modern people would say, well, that should cause a tidal wave, but right. And, and then they say, well, if that's what it is, then actually all earthquakes should be a double earthquake. Like there should be an earthquake. And then 30 seconds later, there should be another earthquake because there should be two tears right? Rumble and then another rumble. And then they argue and they say, no, 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 it's not two tears. It's a, uh, by the way, um, um, Rav Katina, who tells what it is, says he found this out, what earthquakes are, from a necromancer, which literally means someone who brings people up from the dead, meaning from some sort of pagan, non-normative magician, holy man. Right, because if you remember, the Bible doesn't say those things don't work. The Bible says they're forbidden to you, right? Summoning up spirits of the dead and fortune telling. It says that's forbidden. It doesn't say it doesn't work. And in fact, there's a story near the end of 1 Samuel where King Saul wants to find out what's going to happen in the battle tomorrow against the Philistines and he can't get a prophecy. And he summons the prophet Samuel up from the dead. But he has outlawed necromancy, and so he has to go in disguise to a necromancer. It's called the story of the Witch of Endor, right? And he summons Samuel up from the dead, meaning it's not that that pagan magic technology doesn't work. It's just forbidden to Jews, okay? So he found this out from a necromancer, 
And then some other rabbi says, no, no, no. All right. Uh, Rav Katina says, no, no, no. It's not his tears. It's actually he's clapping his hands by way of, of, of anger. That's what causes earthquakes. Rabbi Natan says, no, no, no. It's a groan or a sigh. And Rabbanan says he's angry or frustrated. So he kicks heaven. And that's what causes earthquakes. And then Ravacha Bar Yaakov says, no, no, no. He's folding his feet under his chair, just like you're sitting in your armchair or your kitchen chair, right? And you kind of reshuffle your position and you fold your feet and that makes kind of a noise, right? And that's what causes earthquakes. So all this, you know, very, very um enchanting. You can, so I'm going to, as I always do, I'm going to um, put a copy of this in the uh thing that goes out today and you can read these passages at greater length at home. Okay, pause. It's, it's, we're eight minutes over. It's 8.53. Let's take just a few minutes. I'm always willing to go up until nine, but no further. If you have to leave, you can leave. Wow. Um, and you can listen to it later. So I just want to sort of pause for reactions. By the way, um, people write about this, about other ancient peoples. There's a, a little slim book I have, which is really a long essay called, Did the Greeks Believe Their Myths? You know, Zeus came down in the form of a swan and impregnated a human female. Did the Greeks believe that literally? Is there some point at which they mm-hmm. believed it literally, and then later on they said, this is a work of the imagination, it's a metaphor? I just want to raise another possibility. Are there some people simultaneously, maybe it's not time and historical, maybe it's simultaneously, there are some people who believe that literally, and others who believe it as a metaphor? I just want to raise that and throw it out there, okay? But we have descriptions here of certain people, let us just call them religious adepts, not necessarily you and me. Understand that God has an appearance and a form. It is described as humanoid, and we can talk about that. By the way, just footnote, there was another whole stream of Jewish thought and literature which ended up being pretty much a dead end, but is sort of simultaneous to late the late rabbinic period. It's called Hechalot literature. Hechal means throne room. And in Hechalot literature, people wrote about, you can do all kinds of meditative techniques, like Isaiah and Ezekiel must have done. You can have, you can ascend through the seven heavens and you can have visions of God. And here's what it looks like. His left foot, is 4,000 miles long, and his right foot is 4,000 miles long, and et cetera, et cetera. And you read that, and you say, like, what? You know? But maybe, and and this ended up being a dead end, because we generally don't have visions to try to see God. We know there are other religions that do that. Um, Although there are religious adepts, Jewish religious adepts through the ages, there are a minority note who said, I can do meditative techniques and have visions of God. Apparently, Rav Cook, just a hundred years ago, believed he might be a prophet, might be a visionary. Uh, the author of the Shulchan Aruch, Rav Yosef Karo, believed he was a Navi, a visionary prophet who had visions. There are other people in Jewish history. Um, there's one major residue in our prayer book of this literature of seeing God. Does anyone know what that major residue is? We don't really do it at Betham anymore. Anim Zmirot. Anim Zmirot, Bashirim Erov, that's Psalm. It's a Psalm Sephardi Sidurim every year, 
Um, He's saying it last Shabbat. A lot of other most mainstream shuls, traditional shuls, it's done only on Shabbos, okay? And it's a poem about what God looks like. And many of the images are taken from Shir Hashirim, Song of Songs, with which rabbinic literature understood to be a metaphor for love of God in Israel, which means the man in Song of Songs is God, and he's depicted as having you know, curly, black curly locks and a six pack abdomen and, you know, like this. And, um, and we have some of those lines from Shira Shirim in Anim's Miro, which says, Oh, sometimes God looks like a man of war when he's doing war. And sometimes he looks like a handsome young hunk, like in Shira Shirim. And sometimes he looks like an old man. And this is what he looks like. It's actually a liturgical poem, which is based on Hechalot literature, visionary literature of what God looks like, which is an amplification of the idea from Isaiah and Ezekiel that if you are a visionary, you can see God. By the way, the Hechalot literature has all kinds of things that says, be careful when you're doing this, because if you don't say the right incantation, you're going to die in like, you know, the fourth heaven. So this is risky business. This is dangerous, which takes us back to the Mishnah in Chagiga, right? Four who entered paradise, which is understood to be a metaphor for four sages, four rabbis who engaged in mystical speculation. Who was the only one who survived intact? Mm. I know you um, know it. I know you know, I know it. it. Famous rabbi. Akiva. Correct. Rabbi Akiva. The other three, I always forget which happened to what. One of them died. One of them went insane. Right. And one of them converted out of Judaism, became some sort of left Judaism. Okay. Right. So for the, there's a story about, oh, it's risky to engage in mystical speculation and visionary things. Four great rabbis did that. 75% of them, um, it destroyed them. Only one of them survived. Rabbi Akiva. It's a, it's a cautionary thing. Don't run out to be a visionary because it might kill you. All right. And anyway, so I'm just going to pause. I'm sorry. I talked a lot. I'm going to pause, let you question, comment. Thank you. And feel free to say, oh, I am post by Monadian, and this is totally ridiculous. I don't mind if you think that. We all have, we all construct our own theology. And again, I'm trying to bring you strands of Jewish theology from yes, the past. Yeah. But I think this is in Anim's Mirot. It's in our Kedusha. There are echoes of this. Okay. Terry. I'm, I'm just very interested in um, the editing that went into this, because we know that the Babylonian Talmud was edited. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested also in which generation of scholars these were that we're yeah. seeing there. Yeah. It's fascinating to me, and I'm not I'm not familiar with with these passages. So that's per a, se. that would be a graduate level. I'm getting a Ph.D. in Talmud question. It's but again, let's just say the mission is edited in 200 or 225. Yeah, I, right. And then people talk about it in the Babylonian, all from the Babylonian Talmud for the next 400 years ish. And then the Babylonian Talmud is edited in 600 ish. So the short short answer is 200 to 600 for our program. I know. I know. Yeah. Right. Thank you. By the way, and I'd like to point out, we're going to read other passages in the Talmud that says God doesn't have an image. Okay. But in the editing, 
None of those other passages are appended to these passages, meaning there's no next line that I have left out that says, Rabbi so-and-so says, oh, pshaw, that's nonsense. You are delusional. No one can see God. So there's no editor who felt the need to put a counter passage right next to it. No one needed to say, God doesn't wear tefillin. That is a lovely work of your imagination. The Talmud doesn't say that there. They just right. report Rabbi so-and-so. And then they said, by the way, the earthquake story is lovely. The rabbis in the academy are arguing about what is it that's happening in heaven that causes earthquakes? Does God, is God groaning? Is God crying? Is God just shuffling God's feet? Because God is, you know, rearranging position in God's throne. Right. The king would not sit as still as a statue all day long on the king's throne. The king would, you know, just like you or me, they kind of move their feet around because their their feet are falling asleep. OK, so they're arguing about it. Are they being playful? Do they believe it? I just want to point out. And there's no one who says in the next passage, you guys are all idiots. Right. Or what were you on that day? Correct. <laughs> there is it's speculation. There is speculation about Ezekiel, by the way, because there is speculation about Ezekiel had his whole career in Persia. He's in the exile, Babylonia. Um, um, he he, Babylonia, which then became Persia. Um, and there's speculation about um, did Persian Zoroastrian priests use substances to have visions? Okay, so mm-hmm. there is there is, that has been raised about. Um, uh, Ezekiel, by scholars, not by rabbinic thinkers, okay, but by, you know, secular scholars. All right, we're running over. Got to stop, got to stop. Um, by the way, and there are books uh, that are written collecting the Hechalot literature. There are scholarly books about it. Um, this thing from the 7th or 8th or ninth century is, hey, I can do meditational things, um, and I can have visions, you know, just like tantric Buddhism or something like that, you know, and I can see God and it's risky, but we could do this. Um, that ended up in general becoming a dead end. So, you know, in general, in the four, year 1400 or 1800, like people didn't do that. Even, you know, the Baal Shem Tov, right? He doesn't say I did meditations and then I had visions, right? So later okay. generations didn't say we should do this, we can do this. You know, there are lots of religious streams in Judaism that ended up kind of, you know, becoming a dead end. And that's an interesting one of them. Interesting to some people, but to other people, they say, oh, this is just nonsense. It, is it relevant for our continued understanding of all this to talk about a Katriel who I am also really not familiar with? OK, so the other I don't want to call it a dead end because surely there are some people somewhere who still study it today. The other thing that many Jews from the year, I don't know, three or 400 BCE, as soon as, you know, the Tanakh comes to be generally seen, prophets and writings, up through rabbinic period is something called angelology. And there are books yeah. that are written that say, this is what Serafim is. This is what uh, Kruvim are. This is what Malachim are. And they have lots of names. By the end of the Tanakh, the book of Daniel, we have already Michael and Gavriel. So we have two of them named. And then, of course, we know there's Satan, right, who's a bad angel. He's given the name Samael, okay? Um, and then there are books about lots of names of angels. And some, by the way, some of this fuses with the Hechalot literature 
that part of your incantation when you go to visions, you have to say names of angels in a certain way. Um, feel free to ring off. You know, this is, we're far afield. Um, there are in the ancient world, I'm going to say 500 ish of the common era, something called magical bowls. Magical bowls means you, there's a bowl and then an incantation writer writes certain things on the bowl. And it might be praying for good health in this house or that yeah. you will get pregnant and have a safe childbirth. And then the bowl was buried under, usually under the threshold of the house or it was smashed. Sometimes if you want to curse your enemies, it was smashed and buried under the threshold of the house. This is from Babylonia. They've been dug up. Okay. And that has lots of names of angels because it's like an incantation. So just like in incantations, you have, you know, mumbo jumbo, abracadabra, you know, just think of Harry Potter, right? There are all these words and regular people don't know those words. Only people who know how to do spells know those words. All right. So there were magical bowls, which is like an amulet for either safety or to curse your enemies. Um, um, from the ancient world, we don't do that anymore, but they have lots of names of angels. So we know that there were. People in, let's just call it late antiquity, it's kind of post-biblical, who were very interested in understanding, just to take a step back, humans throughout much of human history have been interested in cataloging and perhaps being able to appease or control divine forces. In pre-monotheism, it was the gods, Okay. But then Judaism became monotheistic, but there still was this subterranean belief that there are other divine forces. See, we didn't make it up. It says it in the Bible. Srafim, Kruvim, Malachim, Michael, Gavriel, Satan, right? Those people would say, we didn't make this up. There are other supernatural forces subordinate to God because we're monotheistic. Okay. And they were very interested in categorizing all those subordinate forces, right? Um, you know, and in Christianity, medieval Christianity, this is, you know, the incubus and the succubus. This is why, you know, men have nocturnal ejaculations. It's because they're, they're mating with a female she demon, right? And it's why people have panics at night because, uh, there are nighttime demons. There are all kinds of, what's our protection against demons? We still have it. You, I bet you have it on your house. The mezuzah. Mezuzah, which is an amulet to protect your house. Now, you can make it all nice and monotheistic and say, no, 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 it's to give me Jewish consciousness when I walk into my home, that it's a Jewish home, you know. But you sneeze and we say, bless you, and it's still because of some medieval belief about demons getting in or out or something like that. And the anthropologists say the reason we smash a glass at a wedding is to scare the the evil spirits away because evil spirits are always trying to hang out at weddings. That's why the bridegroom wears white. So he looks like he's dead. So the evil spirits will be fooled to think that the bridegroom is dead already. Right. So they won't try to kill him on his wedding day because there's all kinds of mythologies about bridegrooms who die on their wedding day. So, you know, there's the residue of all kinds of what some would consider spirituality, what others would consider narishkeit in our tradition. So there is a whole strand of thinking about names of angels and their books that have been written about this. 
And we tend not to read those books. But trust me, if you were to go to some Mizrahi rabbi and say, I need an amulet because I'm unemployed and poor, that amulet would have on it all kinds of stuff. And you would read it and say, I don't know, man. Yeah. Can I ask you one more question? Uh-huh. I know way running over. Way. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know the answer to this because yeah. it's never really occurred to me before. Mm-hmm. Do we have any of the um, remnants of that, of the editing between 200 and 600, where we see the thinking of the scholars of the time as to what went in and what didn't go in the Babylonian Talmud? Uh I would have said yes to the first half of your question and no to the second half, sort of. So there are scholars, but again, this is this is what people write their PA, their dissertations on. There's called what they will do is they will look at a story or a tradition, or they do this for legal literature also, by the way. But for our purposes, stories we'd call this agada, right? The agadot. Okay. The agadot, and they will okay. look at the version of it if there is in the Babylonian Talmud and in the Jerusalem Talmud and in one of the Midrashic collections and in another Midrashic collection. And they'll say things, they'll try to say things like, well, in the land of Israel, Eretz Israel, they told the story this way, but in Babylonia, they told the story that way. And they'll sort of try to have some reason about it or, and an early version of the Agadah is like this. And a late version of the Agadah is like that. So yes, they will try to talk about the, the development of the story. It would be, it's generally nowhere near as cut and dried as you would like the answer to your question to be. Okay, I get it. In the 400s, this is why it was important to them to tell the story this way, but by the 600s, their thinking evolved and they told the story that way. It's very, very rarely that nailed down. It's more like, gee, we see there are these different versions. Why are the, why might the different versions be told differently? It's all speculative. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.